0: I want to open up this opus of Triloquy with a quote, Scott, from um, one of our so-called founding fathers, George Washington. He once said, it's better to offer no excuse than a bad one. Let's get into it. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music, the final opus of Triloquy for Black History Month. I hope you've uh, learned something this Black History Month, maybe discovered something that you hadn't uh, thought of before. Of course. Yeah, and it's been a great month with some really great guests. So uh, if you if you missed any of the Black History Month opuses of Triloquy, I encourage you to go back and check them out at Triloquy.org. Also some really great videos uh, cultivated uh, this month, including uh, an excerpt from Dream Variations uh, by uh, Damien Strange. And and this week, um, uh, there's a video of an improvisation between Devon Russell Gray, a friend of the show, mm-hmm. and uh, today's guest, whose name is Davu Seru. What did you think about our conversation uh, with Davu as, uh, before we get into it? Davu is one of those sorts of people that when you sit
1: down, there are no short conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, Davu doesn't speak. He elocutes. You yeah. know, he He's very um, he, he's telling stories in each answer, you know, and I and, and I guess that speaks to the fact that he's a liter, literature professor, so... Right, right. Know.
0: Over at Hamlin University, I right. believe, so shout out to them, a, a local uh, university here to Minnesota. Uh, also, a gardener, which he goes into um, in his Minnesota Originals, produced by uh, the, the local public television station, who, uh, uh, and you can uh, check out a link to that uh, in the description uh, of this opus, and also a, a really uh, cool musician. You know, he describes himself as a jazz improviser, and uh, in the in the uh, in the conversation, you'll hear him refer to that word jazz as just a placeholder. And I know that uh, Scott here on the podcast, we've already explored, you know, jazz and and, and what it means in, mm-hmm. w- in one of our uh, Black History opuses. But what what did you think about his take on that jazz as just a placeholder and still not a really great way to describe the sort of music that that he produces? I think that he gets to the point of a lot. Of the conversations that we
1: have about music classification and how there aren't any hard lines you know that there's there's shades of gray that get us into jazz improvisation and then back into something like classical but you know i Uh,
0: I I think that it's good that he's blurring those lines. Yeah, and as much as we explore the implications of the word classical, the phrase classical music, he takes that a step further in questioning the implications of uh, the word composition, Mm -hmm. how he composes music off the page, how his music is off the page. And I think that was another really interesting thing um, about the uh, conversation. Uh, One thing I want to underscore that you'll hear um, in, uh, in this opus, that you'll hear from Davu, is thinking about your own barriers to art. So I'll be the first to say that the piece of music that uh, closes out uh, this opus and the Black History Month opuses of Triloquy, it may be pretty different for a lot of people. It may be even a little challenging for some people. But it's important, you know, to to discover and explore, again, your own barriers, our own barriers that set us apart um, from from new and and different styles of music. This is
1: where both Devon Gray and Davu Siru are in their life. Yeah. This is everything that they have studied and played leading up to this moment and watch the video because the communication that is happening between these two I would, I would say is just as important as the communication and concentration that you might see people play in a symphony orchestra. They are making faces at one another. They're um, giving each other uh, physical cues as to where they are in this
0: improvised composition. It's amazing to watch. Absolutely. And, and you, Scott, you really do a great job of producing and shooting those videos. So, oh, thanks, again, uh, that's available for you at uh, triloquy.org. Before we get into the conversation with Davu, Scott, we have to uh, rehash some of our previous drama. So, back on uh, Opus 37 of Triloquy, uh, which featured Sam Bergman, we talked for a little little. little bit about a piece of music called the American Rhapsody, music of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, an Afro-English composer, matched with the words of uh, George Washington. And this is narrated by Aaron Dworkin, the founder um, of the Sphinx Organization, based over in Detroit. I want to read the quote uh, that I started this opus out. Um, with again of George Washington, it, it says it is better to offer no excuse than a bad one. So, um, and and if you want the real deep dive on this conversation, I encourage you to um, go to uh, Opus 37 of Triloquy. I also uh, wrote about it uh, in my blog at GarrettMcQueen.com. If you want to dig through and find that, but I think it's really interesting for that George Washington quote um, to exist, considering what the American Rhapsody is referring to. So, Scott, you know, if you remember, it's about George Washington and how in his will he said that um, he wanted to emancipate um, all of his slaves upon the death of his wife, Martha. So is that— not an excuse? Should George Washington have just let go of his slaves? I mean, surely he had the power to, right? Why would he wait until his wife died? Well, because, you know, I guess they had some work to do that he didn't want his wife to do. And, um, you know, on, on further reading of George Washington's uh, will, which I'll post a, a link to uh, in the description of this, um, you know, it, it goes on uh, to talk about how all of the people under his purview weren't even eligible to be freed on, based on the will that he wrote, you know. So mm. again, you have George. From my perspective, and from the perspective of many, because a lot of people have written to me and said that I need to bring this back up on Triloquy because lots of orchestras are picking up um, this piece of music. I um, to tie this in with Davu, you know, I'm thinking about my own barriers. What are my barriers between? What are the barriers between me and this piece of music and my being able to enjoy this piece of music? Well, for me, it's using the words of George Washington that. You know, even in the performance of the piece, if you take a listen to it, outline the excuses he had. Uh, concerning not freeing his slaves, it's a really uh, important conversation that's happening all over the internet, uh, uh, all over the the uh, orchestral fields. You know, folks, uh, folks I work with and folks I see. So I'm not going to sit here and slam the composition because the actual music by Samuel Coleridge Taylor is is quite beautiful. But um, again, I, I think you know, for me, it's it's missing the mark. I mm. think it's uh, 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 in in more ways than one. You know, there are Uh, presidents that Samuel Coleridge Taylor actually had a relationship with, uh, namely Roosevelt. You know, uh, Roosevelt invited Samuel Coleridge Taylor to the White House, I think, in 1903 and 1904. You know, you have him. You have the plethora of black poets and and black um, artists who uh, might have words to offer. I don't know. It's just weird for me for the words um, of a slave owner to be used to prop up how we can become um, a better people and how he was a victim of his time, and if it was really up to him, you know he could have set all of these people free. Well, was it not up to him? I don't know. that's I, I guess I'll leave uh, I'll leave room for you to offer us some feedback. Uh, go find the American Rhapsody. I think there's a performance of it um, at this time uh, on YouTube. You know take a listen and tell us uh, how you feel about it. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think that it's a fine piece of music that it's just fine to include words of a slave owner and tie it in with uh, music of an Afro-English composer. I'll, I'll let you decide.
1: When we were talking with Sam Bergman, he said that um, the performance being tied to uh, some young uh, black voice actors on the stage, they were actually students that the Minnesota Orchestra had collaborated with right, and this but, was at the performance that I saw right. you know but he also said that as an organization if they if someone perceives a misfire, they want to know about it so is there any way that these other orchestras that are including this in an upcoming season, is there any way in, in your view that they can avoid
0: a misfire... By perf- and still perform the music? Thank you so much for that question, you know, because that, um, that leads me down a, a number of holes, uh, rabbit holes and, and pathways. My short answer is that we always have to be vocal, that we can't be shy about reaching out um, to each other and reaching out to our local um, and national arts organizations and letting our perspectives be known. Mm. Um, I even said this on my um, personal Facebook uh, page uh, I think sometime last week. I, as much as I enjoy Getting the DMs and the emails saying, you know, what do you think about this? Something, something has to be done. I, I really love that, and and that's what I use this platform for. Right. Um, but. These days, everyone has a platform with social media. With the way that classical music works, you have a voice, and it is so important for you to speak up. So again, I really invite you to uh, take a listen to the American Rhapsody. Um, you can find it on YouTube, um, and 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 let us know what you think. If you think it's great, let us know. If you think it's horrible, let us know. But don't just talk to us about it. Talk to your local organizations to make sure that your voice is heard and that more of what you think and more that what you feel in the world of classical music can make it through to the concert stage. And mm. I think that's my spiel on that. Again, if you want the deep dive, you can go check out Opus 37 um, of Triloquy featuring uh, Sam Bergman. But, uh, Scott, as a um, as a sort of transition, you know, I would like to celebrate um, Samuel Coleridge Taylor a bit, you know, again, with this being the final um, Opus of Triloquy for Black sure. History Month, uh, an Afro-English composer who really believed not only in his African heritage, but in the fight for um, equality and civil rights here in America. You know, he was really a figure who who viewed um, the African diaspora as a global thing, and and people who uh, whose rights need to be um, fought for globally. And um, on his trip to either on his trip or not long after his trip um, to the United States, he wrote a series of pieces for violin um, and uh, piano that he called African dances. And thanks to um, Rachel Barton Pine, um, this music has finally been recorded um, and a really great way for us to celebrate um, the relationship between black history, black music history, and this genre of music that's called classical music. So I'd like for us to take a a listen to just a quick excerpt from the first of those African dances by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor as we transition into our conversation with Mr. Davou It is beyond an honor for you to be here on Triloquy. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. So um, we were first connected at the um, American Composers Forum uh, convening um, some months ago. And uh, one of the first things I I wanted to ask you was about institutional involvement in these large racial equity conversations. You know, it's one thing for there to be grassroots initiatives. But what are your opinions on large um, white-led institutions like the ACL? really um, being a bastion for this sort of change, because, you know, at the end of the day, we wouldn't have been connected without that convening after all, maybe not as soon as we
2: were anyway. Well, I think it's honorable to some degree. uh, uh, That is when practiced by the the most uh, uh, sincere uh, institutions out there. But I also think that it's, I mean, I think about my relationship to larger art institutions the same way that some probably have thought about some musicians have thought about their relationship to music industry. Hmm. Uh, and so they can only do so much for me. Um, but they are the embodiment of, you know, capital. (laughs) They are the gateway. There is money. There are writers writing about it. There are venues, there are touring circuits, there are managers. And so uh, I'm going to be going and asking for access to those things as long as people pretend that they are there for uh, uh, those who uh, are, are worthy yeah. uh, and will show up to get them. But I understand their role to f- f- be pretty limited to the extent that they m- most sp- spend most of their time funding projects mm. and not patronizing artists f- over the course of their careers. Sure. Um so, they, they, they can only be so useful. Really, it's about artists working to decide for themselves uh, in community what uh, needs to be done. Sure. Um, the institutions can support, again, projects uh, that we might take on, but projects really only lend to the production of shiny objects. And I'm only so interested in that. I want, I'm talking, I'm about practice and time, the yeah. time that it ultimately takes to, to, uh, uh affect change in, in, in ways that are serviceable. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and institutions and are about pleasing their boards typically, mm-hmm. uh, and, and their fundraisers or their, their, their funders, uh, which is the business of commerce. And so I, again, as an artist, I can, I, that is a conversation that some people are supposed to have not me
0: (laughs) Uh, sure yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and we're definitely going to talk about uh, the ways you know you use the word community, and and I'm really curious um, the ways in which you tie your art with community. But you also used um, the word access, mm. and Scott, that's something that we talk a lot about, especially as mm. an entry point um, into the arts. So um, I'm curious, what what was your, what was your entry point into the arts? Do you remember the first time you picked up? an instrument or the first time you heard sounds that were really interesting to you that you wanted to be involved in?
2: Interesting point because I'm currently developing a piece uh, and I've, I got Kenna Kotman, the wonderful uh, Kenna Kotman to agree to uh, participate on it with me. Uh, I'm developing a piece that will premiere in June that is paying homage to an aunt of mine who was not a biological aunt, Uh, nor an aunt through marriage. Uh, She was brought into the family uh, via my grandmother uh, who was an uh, immigrant to the Twin Cities from Iowa? Mm. Came here after the Second World War, and eventually was in a girl's home because the fa- you know this, the 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 kids were were homeless, uh, and on the streets uh, of Minneapolis, and got swooped up by the social you know the by the state and put into homes. And my grandmother met this woman named Phyllis Austin, uh, who you know hipsters would call a folk artist. Okay, you know uh, Phyllis was uh, uh, was our babysitter. Phyllis would collect bags of, you know, uh, a newspaper, wherein she had news clippings and stamps and crushed eggshells and she collected glitter and yarn and pipe uh, cleaners. Yeah. And she would make things, including uh, sort of cards commemorating holidays and birthdays and things for family. She would take uh, and copy an image, mimic an image uh, from a magazine or a newspaper of praying hands and paint them black mm-hmm. or brown, excuse me, uh, for black people. And she was the first I'd ever uh, identified. Uh, it, was through, it was through her that I ever identified as an artist first oh, as wow. a child. And so I thought that I would be a painter for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And Phyllis uh is is the reason for that I started playing the drums one cold and ugly winter uh <laughs> because my stepfather, who was a dope dealer, exchanged for some a drum kit, and so there were drums in my house all of a sudden in the early eighties, and they were sitting behind the dining room table in the apartment where we lived above Aunt Phyllis and my uncle Jamie and georgia the these three elder queer folks who were. Uh, a literal foundation in this case Since we lived up above them mm. uh, In this duplex uh, And central figures in my family uh, Especially when it came to the kids And so Phyllis was my entrance Into the arts But it was again through a kind of you know Technocratic I'm good at this particular skill uh, Oh look at how well I render this image Represent this, this mm. likeness um, And how well I'm able to Articulate and connect with family and community through art, because again, her audience was limited to family sure. and friends. It was not; she had no ambition to 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 hang in, her works in a gallery anywhere. Uh, and so now, though I'm devo- developing a piece, <laughs> I'm taking it into the, the high art world um, as a as a as a way to remember uh, uh, Phyllis Austin. Uh, and that in uh, and, and her role in my life as an artist uh, who is becoming more and more, oh, get, be, being made busier by institutions as I as I, uh, uh, you know, move into the second half of my career as an artist.
0: Sure. It, it, it's, you know, what an origin story. And, you know, what comes to mind, you know, back to my initial question about institutional involvement, um, certain institutions not being able to understand um, the implications um of a journey that starts like that. What comes to mind immediately is uh, Mm Jay-Z. And there are certain folks in the media that just don't want anyone to forget that, you know, he sold drugs once upon a time. But that origin story um, is very important to his journey and what it means for him to be the artist that he is. I'm I'm wondering if if you think of your journey in in a similar way at all.
2: Well, Horatio Alger's The Rags to Riches Tale, Benjamin Franklin did it. Booker T. Washington did it. Everybody now with this who reads a self help book that's on mm. the whatever whatever times, uh uh uh, uh 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 top you know, bestseller list. Right, yeah uh, can can aspire to the <laughs> same. <laughs> the bootstrap thing. Yeah. Uh yeah, I mean I suppose I defied the odds of my life. I've sublimated, I've gone from, you know, uh uh, uh Destitution to to some degree of success, I guess. Um, some of your audience might not know that I'm a professor of literature by day uh, at, a, at Hamlin University, and uh, the rest of the time, I'm when I'm not fathering, gardening, husbanding, uh, when I'm not teaching or being a scholar, I'm I'm composing music um, because otherwise, I feel like I mean these are generative practices. They're about Um, live life, the opposite of what I was, I spent my childhood, uh, 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 evading. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. So, um, I, yeah, there's, I I would, I, I, am grateful. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the life that I've, uh, managed to, 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 to land into. Uh,
0: this month, um, on Triloquy with our, our guest for Black History Month, you know, in addition to learning about who they are, uh, and their art, uh, I have personally, I can say I've been, uh, given the opportunity to get an inside look at some of the Twin Cities, Black communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before moving here, I, I, I didn't know that the Twin Cities that Minnesota would have a Black community, much less Black communities. And the one, um, that you come from um, maybe is a little different than uh, the ones that have existed historically here in Saint Paul. You're you're from across the river over in Minneapolis.
2: I am, and my my relationship to the the Rondo historic Rondo community is is uh, distant, so mm-hmm. I won't try to speak uh, of it. I mean, the the major say uh, uh, point on the local timeline for Rondo is the displacement. Of mm-hmm. the community uh, that the interstate uh, caused., uh, but there was also displacement in North Minneapolis that we don't talk about very much. Where you're from, Where mm-hmm. I'm from? My family landed in uh, the, again, North Minneapolis after the Second World War. and it lived really close to what was called Sixth Sixth Avenue, which doesn't exist anymore, but was considered the 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 Negro vice area hmm. uh, in the of the near North side, just northwest of downtown Minneapolis. Uh, there was a uh, a cushion of industrial, you know, junkyards and such between the neighborhood, uh, which sort of in local, the local imaginary begins with the Sumner housing projects in Sumner Field, uh, which had, you know, a Jewish community uh, uh, that uh, was replaced by a black community and then a Hmong community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born in the Sumner housing projects in 1978 uh, and h- grew up hearing stories about the old Sixth Avenue uh, where a number of my family members worked in the sex industry. Uh, but it was the, you know, H- H- W. Harry Davis talks about it in his memoirs. Uh, D- Gordon Parks played uh, piano in a brothel along Sixth Avenue, a brothel owned by a man named Pope. Uh, hmm. He talks about it in his autobiography choice of weapons. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it was where, uh, you know, there's a, some sociologists who refer to these kinds of neighborhoods as interzones. They are, you know, by and large black, identified, but places that draw white people sure, f- who have some interest in vice. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I've talked to family who said, no, no, they, everybody was there, baby. Mm. Priests, soldiers, businessmen, they'd come on Friday, they wouldn't leave till Sunday. Mm. you know and then, and so my family is is, is uh, came up around that area but that area was uh, replaced in and including the number of any number of jazz venues and uh, restaurants and businesses and things uh when 94 came through and people started to move you know to disperse further into the uh the north side uh you know and there have always been different northern boundaries plymouth Broadway, 26th, uh, then it was Brooklyn Center, and now Brooklyn Center and Brooklyn Park are home to more black people in Minnesota than the North Side. Hmm, wow. So my mom left the North Side uh, maybe five, six years ago uh, and is now in the inner ring suburbs. Our inner ring suburbs are becoming like the suburbs of Paris. People have decided they want the city back, people who left, uh, and so our poorest people are being pushed. To the inner-ring suburbs, and so North Minneapolis, the North Minneapolis I grew up in, is has changed a great deal, uh, and uh, much of it, much of it has moved on.
0: I wonder if your uh, development as a as a musician and as an artist growing up was impacted by that that continual shift. Were, were there resources that slowly went away, or maybe resources that slowly came into the picture? How 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 was your development impacted by that?
2: So. I- I mean, before we started the interview, we were talking a lot about Chicago because Chicago has left a a, a great mark on the Twin Cities, Mm. the culture of Chicago, people who came from Chicago Uh, in the 80s and 90s along Plymouth Avenue, which, again, at that point was the sort of northern border. I suppose Broadway was. Uh, There was a a gap between them. Uh, There were a number of black-owned businesses along Plymouth Avenue. We had a roller skating rink. We had a grocery store. We had a law office. There was, you know, famously there's the funeral home, which is only is one of two businesses that exist from that time, extant from that time, a funeral home, which is it's in its third, I think, uh, uh, remodel and expansion, Mm -hmm. right? The funeral home. And then the Elks Club would be the other. And it is a black Elks Club, one of those minority of Elks Clubs that sure. the country uh, 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 can lay claim to. My family were members of the Elks Club. The Elks Club is where you would go to drink as a black person who wanted to drink around other black people uh, who was barred from doing so uh, in the other venues or uh, literally through uh, a kind of Jim Crow light. Or because there were no black owned bars until much later when Cassius opened. I, think, I believe it was Cassius Bar. Um there just weren't places for people to, to, to convene. So my, much of that early, what I'd call nostalgic sort of Plymouth Avenue, the black owned businesses, that would start to dwindle in the early 90s as the gangs and the police laid claim to the land uh, and the rest of us became civilians, uh, uh, in a war zone. And you, and you put them beside
0: it. You said the gangs and the police. And the police, Yes.
2: One was policing the distribution of, of crack cocaine. The other was policing the distri- the protection of property. So they were protecting property. And so then some of us were, were civilians. Uh, I was a little boy, uh, coming of age in that time and had the one goal of getting out of the neighborhood by the time I was able to at 18 and I did, I left, I got out. Uh, it was too, it was too much. And I needed to find, uh, and I had sort of this abject relationship to my neighborhood uh, that re- uh, caused me, to, I left. I moved to the other side of the skyscrapers. Remember noting the fact that the skyline sh- was flipped in reverse Sure. Yeah. <laughs> all of yeah. a sudden, yeah. and I was reoriented. You know, I had a different orientation vis-a-vis my, my, my home. Uh, but it was also uh, uh, when I went from north to south, uh, a uh, um, opportunities uh, began to emerge where I had felt previously that I, everyone was saying, no, no, stop. Uh, opportunities began to emerge, uh, and I began to identify slowly as a Citizen of the world, and mm-hmm. not just my mama's house, <laughs> yeah, and not just my native land, yeah, you know uh, and uh my in in terms of how that impacted my art, uh, well, people took me more seriously outside the neighborhood the day I graduated from North high in nineteen ninety six I remember all the people I'd had beef with for four years uh coming up and everyone sharing hugs and saying, "What are you going to do now?" and these are the kids now who went to North High. Who come for, had come from middle class black families sure. I did not who were off to uh, black colleges in the south mm. by and large they were get, they were getting out of Minnesota they mm-hmm. were leaving and I they were they were all headed off to college and I was going off to the south side to make art
0: and um, you were headed south just not as far yeah, south as they yeah, were yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, just to the south side to make art uh, and then eventually Chicago and then eventually the world so uh, 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 the world according to France and and some other places. Um, So how has it impacted my artistry, my work as an artist, Um, those shifts, those changes? I remember the first time, well, I grew up taking kind of black vernacular culture for granted. Uh, It wouldn't occur to me until I found myself surrounded by white people that, oh, there were some things that we did, until I found myself surrounded by white people and then eventually in school, that there were things that we had been participating in all the time that would rise to the level of interest yeah. <laughs> that we just took for granted. Like oral tales of, you know, there's a number of, uh, uh, of tales that go under the, there was a, the began there was a white man, black man, chinese man, just like there okay. was a priest, rabbi and a bishop or whatever the I forget the the form. Yep. We had those, you know, there's the I mean I was a B boy, breakdancing, riding on people's walls. Hmm. Uh my friends were DJs and barbers and everybody thought they could rap. Uh and uh we're listening to to Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and 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 identifying Remember, this is the coast wars. So black identity mediated by music industry Mm -hmm. who was telling us that there was an East coast and a West coast who was at war. And so we bought that because the gangs in our neighborhood identified with West coast gangster rap, we identified with what we presume to be more creative coming out of the uh, New York city and more cosmopolitan uh, and more conscious and positive. Uh, And so there was that tension in the neighborhood. I remember having to sort out when somebody in blue would approach you in your red baseball cap that was that was cocked the wrong angle, mm. uh toward the wrong angle and they would correct you. Uh, there was, you know, we're living out, you know, uh, the things that I spend most of my time as a scholar studying and teaching about now. Uh, you took them for granted. When I left uh, and found myself surrounded by white people <laughs> in an arts community with a capital yeah. A, yeah. Uh, uh, it would be a while before I started to look back and go, oh, wait a minute. We have a presence here that, we, that, that, that I don't think other people, uh, uh, you know, I, I, that, that I haven't acknowledged, and I'm certain other people haven't, Yeah, uh, that's, that's remained illegible. And I think there's something about proximity uh, and our closeness and proximity that has us take for granted uh, uh, what we think we know about one another. And I'm, I'm claiming that black culture in the Twin Cities has remained illegible. Um, to, uh, to the twin cities. Um, and not much of the work that I feel like I'm doing now is about making it more legible. So my work as an artist is directly connected with what is the movement of people and culture in this place. Um, so that we can achieve something that's sustainable that right. is, isn't so reliant on institutions. Right. It's more self-determined. This we learned from the Black Arts Movement of uh, the 19. I would call it 1965 to to 1980, uh, uh, when Black people, like they had done in the 20s, uh, in the 20s, uh, during the new in the 40s, uh, during the the New Negro Renaissance and the Chicago Renaissance. Known
0: to many people as the Harlem Renaissance, the Harlem Renaissance so, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and
2: then the Chicago Renaissance. Um, well, one of the reasons that some of us like to decenter Harlem is because think about it. Harlem, Jazz. Jazz got to St. Louis and Kansas City and Chicago before it got to New York City. Mm. Right? It followed the Mississippi River right. from right. the south, right? And so one of the Harlem Renaissance is a misnomer invaded in the nineteen seventies. The new Negro Renaissance was happening more broadly. There was a patron. From Minneapolis of the Harlem Renaissance, who's uh, I forget—it's uh, it, not Meridel Le it's someone else, I think—who had been had funded uh, uh, in part *Fire*, which was the the preeminent journal of the younger set of Black artists in Harlem at the time, mm. Wallace Thurman and Langston Hughes, or New Hurston and Bruce Nugent, and them. Um, but the, so, decentering Harlem to show that this is a broader. Uh, 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 Harlem was just one articulation of that that movement. Chicago was of the Black Arts Movement. The Twin Cities had a Black Arts Movement. Prince emerged from it. We don't talk about it in those terms because Prince is our, 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 Prince means all, everything. He's not just black. Well, that Afro he died with ought to suggest something to you.
0: And, <laughs> and the work that he was very vocal in very, with Black Lives Matter toward the end of there, so. you know, uh, Scott, uh, you know, what all of this is reminding me of is the question that um, that I had prepared to ask all of the guests this month, which is what is wrong with the idea of Black History Month and what is wrong with the way we treat it. And and you're you're laying that out there right now. So much of this Black history that is uh, is not explored nationally, much less. Here locally, I mean, you, you say Black history in the Twin Cities is is
2: illegible. It is, in part, because of our far-sightedness, is uh, the other um, uh, way I like to think about it. Uh, the, the, the the triumphant, heroic Olympian victories of the past, Freddie McGee, Gertrude Brown, the 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 ways in which we've slowly, very slowly, dealt with the lynching in Duluth. Dred Scott at, uh, Fort Snelling. Uh, we like to look at things that happen that as a, uh, uh things that, that are mark racial sort of high points mm. in local history, uh, the, uh, that are, that seem to have happened long ago. Race is annoying. Race is annoying for black people too. We mm. don't, you know, Race is annoying, <laughs> and so there's a people don't like to talk about it or deal with it, uh, except for to put the onus on black people. When, as Du Bois said in Souls of Black Folk, about the Negro problem, I don't have a problem. Yeah, the Negro problem is a white problem. It's not mine. You know, it's 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 no. You need to deal with race uh, as, as much as we talk about it. You need to deal with it uh, as well. That is the the person who is charging us with being overly conscious of race or or whatever. Overly conscious of what it means to live in this body in this place, sure, sure, um, and so uh yeah uh,
0: i I kind of wanted to um you know transition a little bit you know when you when you talk about um you know the the history behind what is um, the what are the black communities here in the Twin Cities? You know, before we t- turned on the microphone, you talked about how um, uh, lots of your people came uh, from down south, some of which uh, from my hometown of Memphis. And you know, when I think about um, you know black uh, connections to the south no matter where you live in the country and, and sort of the culture that surrounded that um... i, I can't help but to think about um, the fact that in your uh, minnesota originals you know produced by the uh, public television here you start by uh... comparing your music and your artistry to gardening mm-hmm. you know my, my grandmother uh... both of my grandmothers who are still living and my great grandmothers who um... have gone now are, are were very much attached to the earth in, in that way, you know, William Grant still um, even described his first symphony, the Afro-American symphony, mm-hmm. as portraying the sons of the soil who still retain so many of the traits of their African forebears. Mm-hmm. Is, is really um, having your um, hands and your mind in the soil, literally and figuratively, something that is still a, a, a part of your life? Uh, and if so, why does it remain such an important part of
2: your life? Oh, yeah, my tomato seeds go in. The, oh, yeah. they'll they'll go in the window in the next couple of weeks. Okay, I'll be putting them in the window. no, it's 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 something I didn't discover about myself discover about myself until me and my wife purchased a home uh, and and decided to to make a a home in Frogtown. But uh, I no one in my family gardened. Uh, I don't remember spending much time thinking about. Uh, the yard <laughs> at mm-hmm. home. I did, however, grow up again. I'm 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 looking back at my own innocence at a time in North Minneapolis's history when it wasn't an odd thing for a black kid to walk, uh, you know, kind of cover a 20 block radius <laughs> uh, uh, on foot with your friends or on bikes that uh, uh, that would include. Theater Worth Park, and we'd go into the woods and poke at sunnies and bluegills in the stream over by the Glenwood Inglewood water filtration place across from the lake. Uh, and I'd come out of the woods, and there'd be a native garden, there'd be a garden with plants marked in Latin names, Echinacea and mm-hmm. etc. et cetera, sedum. Uh, and you'd wonder about this. these things. You'd go up to Ella Louise or, a, or a, a, a Butler. The Wildflower Garden again on bikes, and people would chase you out. Uh, there was a i mean it's a I, I count it as like I do drumming a music a meditative practice uh, it's not that it is becoming increasingly sacred, yeah my family's relationship to land i only recently learned something about, and that is the family who's still in the South, in the Memphis area, sure. who, going back to the Civil War, have been sitting on hundreds of acres of land uh, that their great, their grandfather began to, uh, my grandfather's grandfather began to accumulate yeah. after the war. Uh, and the young people don't seem to want anything to do with it. There are a lot of elders around in their 80s and 90s who are sitting on the land. Waiting for folks to come back from the city to take responsibility for the land that their family toiled (laughs) over, Uh, but the land that they own that kept them, Mm. kept them from, as my grandfather would uh, put it, from book debt. Saved them from the kind of book debt, uh, that relationship to sharecropping Uh that uh, is so familiar to so many families who eventually left and came north.
0: Right, right, yeah, some of mine included mm-hmm. my my grandmother tells stories about uh, sharecropping and uh, and about the money that their family did not receive in the process and and how that had um an effect on um, their relationship with that land and why I don't have any sort of um, relationship with it. um but but again, Thinking about uh, the garden, mm. the land, the soil as that metaphor. So much planning, so much practice. So, you know, I don't have much of a green thumb, but it seems like so much planning and practice goes into it. And I find this interesting um, pair beside um, your music that, by and large, I feel like you described as, you describe as improvisatory. Oh yeah, you know, certainly. Yeah. The the sort of you know the relationship between kind of going with the flow musically, but being very well planned. Um, on the other side, of
2: things. I'm an improvising composer. I've embodied, you know, I'm only 40, I'll be 42 in a couple months, 42 two, two years old, but I've paid attention over the course of my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've tried and, and I carry some things with me that as I'm improvising, uh, as I'm composing, uh, are worked out in real time. Uh, we, we're, the time wherein we attend to the present moment as much as as we can. Mm -hmm. Uh, Composition for posterity's sake is of some interest, but performance is everything for the work that I do. Mm. Uh, I am not a page, uh, a composer for the page. Performance is everything. Uh, It is ritual practice as much as it is uh, commerce Mm. between audience and performer. Uh, We insist that it be, we insist that it be, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just oh, you're a musician like the rest of them, competing for the same in the same gigging economy that the rest of them are. And I know some of us are oriented a bit oriented a bit differently, mm-hmm. uh, and we take seriously things like uh, these life affirming uh, processes like gardening yeah. uh, that are uh, uh, sometimes that we can invite people into, uh, so that we can figure out where we've been, where we're at. And where we're going, mm. ward off the hellhounds and all that to, uh, in the process. Mm. I am not a page.
0: I love. I love that phrase. I, I'm. I'm. I'm going to use that again because that's <laughs> that's really important. Um, and uh, you know, the word composer, mm. um, composing. You know, we we began by talking about the American Composers Forum and how they. Um, how that organization is addressing the implications of words like composer. What what is what's your relationship with that word? I mean, obviously, you don't think of composition again as something that is on the page. You take that word and and bring it to life, for lack of a better word.
2: Certainly, and don't forget that the composers' forum and organizations like them are only making that distinction now because we've made we've we've forced them to. Mm. Um, as a composer, I mean, I've never, I didn't start calling myself a composer until I got my first gig, my first commission as a composer. Uh, and so I had now the time to sit and think about what it meant, uh, as an improviser, you know, among improvisers, we consider what we do to be composition and spontaneous composition in real time. Again, we are the, 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 the archive of, of, uh, music history, each, each and every one of us. Uh, who conjures some bit of it for the, uh, whatever the occasion, you know, for the occasion. Yeah. Um, and composition as it relates to so-called classical music and so therefore somebody's theory of civilization that doesn't include difference, but the city of God idea. The the wherein we're all we're in this walled city where everything is provided for, and all we have to have to do now is contemplate the 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 wonders of art, Hmm. right, for its own sake, devoid of difference, the kind of difference that causes anxiety, the kind of difference that caused T. S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and and uh, the Iowa voter uh, so much anxiety the last election. Hmm. Uh, that uh, 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 and so we we what we do is we go to that singular <laughs> monastic yeah <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that gives us a sense of identity that that resolves uh, uh, the tensions that that arise because of difference uh, classical to me I mean people have problematized the term classical going back for for a time now the book Black Athena meant to do that and meant to demystify the The power, right, uh, mm. of uh, Greco-Roman history had wielded for so long as this white endeavor, in the eyes of the the academies, yeah, right. Uh, not instead of a Mediterranean, sure, uh, cultural phenomenon, sure, right. Uh, that was about people moving around, travel, migration it's kind of like the conversation that we started having about black people who move here to the twin cities from elsewhere and bring assumptions about black life and mm-hmm. identity with them and the local blacks go okay yes and yes and mm. <laughs> mm. let us now uh, uh, tell you something about who we are yeah. and 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 how you might what you might find here in this place um so that demystifying um the kind of again power that is uh, that is implanted transplanted from elsewhere uh, is 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 important work it's important that we historicize it uh not we don't just bounce around as if we're the ones making it up whole cloth reinventing the wheel at every turn no i am not original i sure. don't pretend to be i am the current manifestation of you know these forces mm-hmm. uh, articulated uh, uh, in a way that suggest me and or my signature so
0: and 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 as planted as you are and your experiences are um, here in Minnesota you you've done some travel yourself yeah. in, including um, working with folks all the way in France I, I wonder how how that happened what, what initiated such a big move like that
2: I've never been to France you so know? there's a friend of mine who's a producer who started coming to the Twin Cities uh, over a decade ago perhaps well over a decade ago, I don't remember, uh, who discovered the local music scene and was quite impressed. Mm. And decided because he was coming back because he had a a child living here, uh, he'd be coming back periodically, well, why not get involved? Uh, And there was a festival that developed out of it that put local musicians in dialogue with folks coming in from elsewhere in the country and in Europe and in uh, the UK. I received a grant uh, that was wherein I'd been recommended by another black musician on the scene uh, for a grant. And they asked me, what would you do with it? And I said, well, over the years, I've played with a number of musicians, uh, European musicians, European musicians who after or during the 1960s in response to the black arts movement, in response to Albert Eiler and John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane, et cetera, had to figure out who they were, yeah, where they lived, and so there's this thing called free improvisation, which some people know about. Groups like the Spontaneous Music Ensemble, uh, uh, and AMM, are representative of that 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 uh, type. Um, <clears throat> those folks had been coming over and touring the states, and occasionally stopping in the Twin Cities and interacting with us. I said to these this this granting institution, I would go over there, yeah, now now that I can afford it. Mm. And so they, so they said, OK, signed, signed off on it. And I called my friend who had uh, uh, been responsible for the festival here and said, hey, I'm coming over. I got money. You don't have to pay for it. Would you, would you put something together? And he put together a recording session, a tour. I got to make a record playing a drum set that belongs to Roy Haynes, the, 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 the wonderful master of bebop drumming. Mm-hmm. Uh, they played with everybody from Billie Holiday to Duke Ellington to Monk. Uh, he's still around but now retired from drumming. But he had a kit that lived in a recording studio outside of Paris at, where I had happened to be making this record. And so I got to make it on Raines' kit. Wow. Wonderful, wonderful <laughs> experience. Uh, and, I've, and then since that first trip, I've gone back back four or five times, going again in the fall uh, uh, to work with a group of uh, people in a small medieval community in Trenyac who throw a festival. But then I also make a trip up to a commune uh, of so an, an infamous commune in a in a place called Tarnak uh where there are people who have tried to have set out on the city of god idea themselves, <clears throat> but around different uh, a different focus yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, where we talk about this business of music and art and is it in relationship to history and 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 change mm-hmm. yeah. change from 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 the the frogs the frog's perspective as Nietzsche would have put it from below. Yeah. So
0: and, and thanks to sorry and, and thanks to the uh, black uh, history that, you know, the, the, the holes that were filled in that way, the bits of black history that I did learn about concerning France's relationship with black folk. I can't help but to think of Josephine Baker. Yes, sir. I think of Scott, I think of Edmund Day whose music that uh, we play. He's someone who who went over um, to France because of what was going on over here. Your going across the Atlantic wasn't, ex- you know, the reasons weren't exactly the
2: same, but but surely you draw some similarities there. The piece that I told you about, Dead King Mother, mm-hmm. uh, which is a blues for chamber ensemble that me- means to write into local history, this event that happened on April 4, 1968, wherein my uncle killed a man, a white man, in revenge as re- in it, for King's assassination. I premiered that piece in Tarnac mm. uh, f- a couple years back, a sketch of it, and talked with people there. So the people in this area of France have a strong resistance. Uh, history, the French resistance during the Second World War, there's a lot of pride around resistance, and so we were talking uh, about sort of the history and legacy of Black power and Black cultural resistance and political resistance uh, in dialogue with French resistance. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a there's a nationwide strike in France right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we. So these are these are people who are receptive to it. They're not. They're not. They don't have the myth of American democracy to kind of be the barrier between them and the truth. And so yeah. so they're open and willing to talk uh about what's real. Uh and that's one of resistance is is, is, is part of it. And so and then France, you know, as you noted, is has a long history of uh welcoming African Americans that despite their horrendous colonial legacy. Sure. Places like Algeria, especially. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, it, that despite that, I was interviewed by a, a magazine in France and they asked me, How is it coming to France? I said, Well, I'm not a woman. I'm not queer, I'm not visibly Jewish, I'm not visibly Muslim, Uh, and so I'd say, and I'm a jazz musician, and so I'd say it's pretty good. Mm. They like me here in France. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Can we talk about that word a little bit, about the separation between jazz musician, classical musician, and how Mm -hmm. that term jazz musician can kind of have like an othering effect?
2: Yeah, so I I use the, uh, uh, it's a placeholder, jazz. It is a marketing term uh, that... Has be, was cemented uh, sometime at around the time that Jelly Roll Morton and Alan Lomax got together, and Alan Lomax, in exchange for a bottle of whiskey, uh, told Jelly Roll Morton to play piano and tell them stories, and he told them stories about Storyville in New Orleans, and he called it jazz, and he explained that it, what it meant in the context of the sex industry, mm-hmm. uh, and so it stuck, and some people don't. Uh, uh, talk about it in term, black people in particular and talk about it in terms of jazz, it's just one facet. It is one of the genres of great black music. Yeah. Um, and so when classical people talk about jazz, I've, in, to, or when they've spoken with me about it, I've heard them refer to it as the genres, the types, again, difference. Mm. What we're about, what they would claim to be about is something more objective and universal that draws from all music, whereas jazz is this drew from simple Pop song forms, blues, uh, ballad tradition, uh, Anglo ballad tradition, uh, in order to generate, well, back in the, uh, 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 the during the, rena- the Harlem Renaissance and the, the 40s and the, the period of the Second World War, pop music, mm-hmm. <laughs> popular mm-hmm. yep. music that young people might consume. Mm, right. Um, those of us who are students of that and are the legacy of that identify with it as high art. Uh, of the of the uh, the stature, issues of of a, uh, a classical, so-called classical musician. I also, though, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to pretend to have been uh, uh, always woke or hip. The old, the old woke. Sure. <laughs> um, had to encounter thinking of myself as inferior, as a as a, 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 a someone playing. Uh, traditional music, uh, surrounded by people who were playing again music that they would claim to have been more objective. Right. I was uh, enamored with modern classical music composers like uh, Zanakis and Feldman and Cage oh, wow. uh, and Stockhausen and 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 Lockman and all sorts of people. Uh, for an, uh and I still am to some degree, uh, but and you take the concert with Sun Ra and John Cage as a perhaps a, a representative anecdote of this struggle. Those, these were two people who thought of themselves as equally brilliant geniuses who went along with the gig for the, for the, cause it was a pay date and yep. they, they, they had this sort of kind of provisional respect for the other, yeah. but really didn't take one another seriously. And when they parted, they was like, ah, I'm going to go back and do my thing and they can, I'll let Cage, I'll let Ra, do his thing, and we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah, and and
0: I can't help but to think about that situation. Um, you know, uh, that sort of collaboration fitting under the umbrella of "quote unquote" classical, mm. because. Mm someone on the stage mm-hmm. is white. I'll just mm-hmm. say that. You know, I, I think about mm-hmm. the relationship, you know, Duke Ellington's name has come up a lot. I think about the relationship between Ellington's music and Gershwin's music yeah. and which of those two composers we put into the classical quote-unquote category. Which one, yeah,
1: which one gets into our playlist.
0: Right, exactly. And 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 how how that uh, perpetuates ideas surrounding um, uh, the the perceived differences in those genres, and you know if you want to even go further, where that music is performed. Uh, Gershwin is in the concert halls. Ellington is in the speakeasies, and, and 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 maybe not so much today. You know his music is being respected more, but again, it's important to acknowledge that history and that historical uh, relationship as it applies uh, to this topic, um, specifically. I mean, do you, I I wonder if you consider that a bad word because, you know, jazz improviser, I feel like is a phrase that I've heard you, um, use when you're identifying yourself. Only as
2: a placeholder. I, 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 I mean, I, it's convenient that serves other people, not me term. Uh, I don't, but also I'd spent a lot of time trying to, I spent a lot of time arguing with my elders, uh, in my head <laughs> from the uh, coming out of the black arts movement who were trying to evade the term because they thought it was racist. And I thought, well, no claim it because I, as a, as someone who comes from blues people as Baraka would have said it, Leroy Jones, AKA Mary Baraka, I, I'm and someone, which is to say someone who's not repressed hmm. and is, is not worried about, uh, the sins that my family is committed by, you know, uh, uh, working in the sex industry uh, or being impoverished. Mm. Um, that legacy, that part of the music's history is absolutely essential in terms of the music's authenticity for me. Um, it's one thing, you know, Dave Brubeck, jazz goes to college uh, and sublimated so it's somehow better. That's the same thing people said about Ellington. Sure right sure and he played the jungle music card too mm-hmm. and, I mean and, and but but it, or black classical so it's not just jungle music it's black classical eh stop with the name calling mm-hmm. listen <laughs> and when you find yourself alienated go listen to something else you yeah. know or ask why sure yeah that's what I tell my students when, when we're when they particularly when they encounter poetry well think about what the barriers to your comprehension right. are rather than just j- j- canning it and, 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 just setting that aside, I can't do this. Yeah. This isn't for me. This is alienating. The author did something wrong. No. What are the barriers? What are the barriers to you in particular, uh, en- engaging with this, this thing that you're too, too quick to call a name Yeah. to put, so you can put it somewhere
0: right in the right. order,
2: in the grand, the great chain of being, where does this thing fit? Uh, and, and, and when black people, uh, when black people's signature is on it, it, Tends to fit in a very specific place in this country's uh, uh, in this con- that this country has provided for it,
0: and that is That's a conversation we could go in forever because right now, when you say that, I'm thinking about the latest Grammys in which um, Tyler the Creator won uh, Best Rap Album, but it wasn't really a rap album. It was music that they couldn't really categorize. So because blackness was attached to it, it was a rap album. Um, why do you think we? Re- why
1: both of you? Why do you think we rely so heavily on? dividing up styles of music and trying to identify them as different.
0: Well, I mean, you, you say we, and, and you, you have, uh, uh, Davo, you, you have a, a much, you know, the depth of your experience in this is, is much deeper than mine. I know, but I'm thinking about, I'm thinking back to my childhood. I'm thinking about listening to, um, going to church and listening to spirituals. I'm thinking about turning on the radio back in those days and hearing Queen Latifah naughty by nature. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the, the, the bits I learned about black classical, including, you know, some of that that old piano music. You know, we talk about Nathaniel Dett a lot these days. For me, there was no need to segment all of that because it was just all a part of my black musical experience. But when you throw in capitalism, when you throw in all sorts of other things, I feel like that's where those dissections come in.
2: Good point. One of the ironies about today is that in the effort to try to find to speak to a black audience directly, right? The exploitation of the after the '60s, we got a black radio station out of it, right? Camel J Radio, uh, which used to operate out of the housing projects on the north side, mm. was the radio station I grew up listening to. People ask me, "Did you grow up with music in the house?" Yeah, on the radio, mm. we danced yeah. to the radio in the house. You turn it up, and it was the only radio we listened to. I tell younger people, younger than millennials, no, there was a black radio station that was the only black radio station, and that's all we listened to. So think about how and, that And the diversity you.
0: of the music within,
2: w- exactly, within exactly. that. Good point. Good yeah. point. Depending yeah. on the day of the week, depending on the time, time of the day. day. Yeah. You know, it was like you got the whole, the, the whole archive yeah. represented there, right? Mediated by news uh, that was relevant to black people. Right. Exactly. Right. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time when uh, that was normal. Uh, the, you know, the way that capital has is, 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 uh, developed toward whatever it's, wherever it's heading. Um, and now there's those, 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 you know, they would call it binary distinctions that we're supposed to be bigger than now, uh, are, 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 they're gone. Hmm. And those of us who are, but those of us who are old enough to remember have to say, no, but there's a reason why. We call it black music. Mm. There's a reason why the musician is talking about being black. Yeah. There's a reason why race is so central to that Tyler the creators uh, articulation of who he is yeah. despite the genre. Yeah. And you know, it's it's um uh, but and we have to keep telling. We yeah. have to keep telling. I'll go back though in terms of why do people need to to compartmentalize it's mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's about diversity it's anxiety born out of diversity all i mean it's it's Two, over two thousand years ago, there was a, a Shakyamuni the Buddha <laughs> said as much. I mean, it's it's it, it goes back for a very long time. The observation that people, when it, I mean when Gilgamesh and his people build a wall around the city in Mesopotamia, it is to keep out difference. Mm. The Hebrew uh, Bible, the same problem, right? The problem of difference, those from without. What do you do with someone who does not speak like you, think like you, talk like you, eat with, eats what you eat? Keep them out. You keep them out or you put the, find a place for them that mm. is their place. You Under draw the... by, boundaries around it. Here's your place. This is where the Jews live. For now, then it'll be St. Louis Park in New Hope. But for now, it's the, around Sumner Field. Right, we'll tell you when you can go. Mm. Right, it's you draw boundaries around it because it makes you the one in power more comfortable but under the guise of safety. But but are. to
0: bring back that metaphor of gardening, there are walls that are built built to protect what's is, inside. You know, you yeah. don't you don't want Good rabbits point. eating up Good your tomatoes. Good point. That so.
2: dynamic that there's a dynamic tension between the two. Good yeah. point. I'm yeah. glad you said that because I don't want it to sound as if uh, there is only one uh, uh, way to think about this. I think it. Yeah, the walls the Oh, what's the, the, the fences make good neighbors, uh, uh
1: something uh, like Frost that Frost
2: or somebody, Robert Frost, I believe, uh, over in my neighborhood. That's the case. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, yeah, indeed. I, I built a fence in my backyard when I started gardening and my neighbor stopped talking to me because he assumed that it meant I didn't want to talk to him. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I said, no, I just want to occasionally be able to sit in my fake Adirondack chair because I can't afford the real ones. Uh, and, and sit without being stared at all the time. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to
0: ask you to Buy categorize it, it. the music yeah. that uh, of yours that we're about to hear, uh, but before I ask you to de- to describe it, I kind of want to loop all the way back around uh, to the first thing we were talking about, institutional involvement. And Scott, you know, you asked, you, you've asked, um, you asked Paviel, you know, about the way our institution you know, sure. is, is seen in those circles. I, I wonder if you uh, would ask Davu the same question. Yeah,
1: there's um, you see, there's I think there's a um, misconception that public radio uh, has an, an openness to all. And yet I'm finding out through through being part of this podcast that there are certain people and indeed segments around the city that do not feel included. In, you know, the, the, uh, or that it's, I don't want to say that it's not necessarily a welcoming place, but that NPR has not given attention to certain corners. Do you find that? Did you feel it?
2: Uh, I, I would say yes. And it's not just black people. Uh, it's also some, uh, a, a large number of white people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I say that as someone who listens to public radio. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure what's to be done about the matter. I When you listen to Camel J Radio, you hear people who sound like you, who in some cases might think like you, and a lot of cases don't, mm-hmm. uh, talking about things that seem to have a direct impact on you. Uh, I'll take my one swipe at uh, my favorite radio station, Minnesota Public Radio, and say that they don't talk about tote bags and coffee mugs or wine, uh, book clubs and wine. They don't talk about those things, Uh, and so they they talk about things that again that that matter uh, to people with less leisure time. Mm. So,
0: and you know, as a you know as a black person working for an, uh, an institution like this, I find it to be my responsibility to make you know, what we're producing um, as broad as we can, and, and not necessarily as broad, but just making sure that I'm not forgetting about the communities that aren't always centered mm. in the production of of the things that um, happen here, and um, including this conversation. Um, Dafu, this is, has been really phenomenal. Go ahead, yeah.
2: Thank you, and I would just say that you and I, Garrett, uh, our presence here is an indication of the fact that you and I are bicultural, uh, we have done more work hmm. to come to this y'all's way. Right? We've had to do more work to come y'all's way. Uh, and so we, uh, but that means that, you know, oh, maybe we shouldn't have black people on because black people don't listen. No, some of us know your world as well as we know our own. right? And so, you know, it, it, no, we bring us on because we know that world too and adding us to the conversation uh, uh, I think helps keep, helps to keep us all honest. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about this music we're about to hear. So I'm going to play some drums and Devon Gray, my, my, my good brother from Rondo. Uh, I live in Frogtown. We're just across university Avenue from one another. Uh, he's going to play bassoon. We're going to, uh, improvise, uh, based, uh, I guess the, the text, the score, the page would be the relationship we've developed over the last handful of years, uh, as individuals, but then also our our, our pedigrees as trained and untrained uh, uh, listeners.
0: Yeah. Again, you are not a page. I am not a page. Word. I think that's what I'm going to call this Word. one. Not a page. <laughs> yeah. I'm I am not a page, as as Davu just so beautifully said. I'm going to live with that. Shout out to Alan Page. Now. Shout out to Alan mm-hmm. Page. <laughs> Davu, <laughs> thank you so much. This has really been great. Thanks, thank, Davu. Thank you. La, Thank mm-hmm. you.